Hi, I'm Cleo. Welcome to the podcast in which I use my PhD in English to interpret the songs of Taylor Swift. Today, we're wrapping our tendrils around Ivy, the song, the plant, and everything in between. Ivy by Taylor Swift. How's one to know? I'd meet you where the spirit meets the bones in a faith-forgotten land, In from the snow, your touch brought forth an incandescent glow, tarnished, but so grand. And the old widow goes to the stone every day, but I don't. I just sit here and wait, grieving for the living. Oh, goddamn, my pain fits in the palm of your freezing hand, taking mine, but it's been promised to another. Oh, I can't stop you putting roots in my dreamland, my house of stone, your ivy grows, and now I'm covered in you. I wish to know the fatal flaw that makes you long to be magnificently cursed. He's in the room. Your opal eyes are all I wish to see. He wants what's only yours. Oh, goddamn, my pain fits in the palm of your freezing hand, taking mine, but it's been promised to another. Oh, I can't stop you putting roots in my dreamland, my house of stone, your ivy grows, and now I'm covered. Clover blooms in the field, spring breaks loose, the time is near. What would he do if he found us out? Crescent moon, coast is clear, spring breaks loose, but so does fear. He's gonna burn this house to the ground. How's one to know? I'd live and die for moments that we stole on begged and borrowed time. So tell me to run or dare to sit and watch what will become, and drink my husband's wine. Oh, goddamn, my pain fits in the palm of your freezing hand, taking mine, but it's been promised to another. Oh, I can't stop you putting roots in my dreamland, my house of stone, your ivy grows, and now I'm covered in you, and I'm covered in you. So yeah, it's a fire. It's a goddamn blaze in the dark, and you started it. You started it. So yeah, it's a war. It's the goddamn fight of my life, and you started it. You started it. Oh, I can't stop you putting roots in my dreamland. My house of stone, your ivy grows. And now I'm covered in you. In you. Now I'm covered in you. In you. According to Wikipedia, my preferred source for plant facts, ivy is a term that is usually used to refer to plants of a particular genus, hedera, which contains about a dozen different, quote, evergreen, climbing, or ground-creeping woody plants. But the term is also colloquially used of other non-hedera plants, such as ground ivy and poison ivy. That Taylor Swift is here referring to hedera rather than these interlopers seems clear based on the metaphorical structure of this song. As this Wikipedia article goes on to point out, quote, the genus name hedera is the classical Latin word for ivy, which is cognate with ancient Greek condano, to get or grasp, both deriving from Proto-Indo-European for to seize, grasp, take. Hedera may thus be translated as the clinging plant. And cling it does in this song. The addressee of the song is a grasp someone who plants their roots in the speaker's house of stone and covers it. I can't stop you putting roots in my dreamland, my house of stone, your ivy grows, and now I'm covered in you. If you know anything about ivy, apparently I don't know, I get my facts from Wikipedia, it's a great climber. Think of ivy-covered walls and ivy-draped ruins. There is apparently some debate over whether ivy breaks down the stone it grows on or simply finds it easier to grow on stone that is already broken down, planting its little hairs in the crevices. That is, whether it's an agent of decay or an opportunist. In fact, an article called English Ivy Facts, Uses, and Problems by Linda Crampton on dengarden.com 
tells me that some even argue that ivy protects the walls it grows on. There is at any rate this relationship between ruin and ivy, whether ivy comes before or after the fact. The Wikipedia article helpfully directs us to J.M.W. Turner's watercolor, Interior of Tintern Abbey, Monmouthshire, an illustration of arches draped in ivy, supporting nothing and instead highlighting the emptiness where there was once a monastery, bare ruined choirs, as Shakespeare might have put it, where many leaves are now hanging. The ivy rampant over the structural bones of a gutted building supersedes and reclaims architecture, scoffing at this human attempt to make something of the landscape, even as the human artist makes something different, art, out of the spectacle of ruin before him. So far, so romantic. And indeed, we have already been to Tintern Abbey in episode 1, in which we found echoes of Wordsworth's poem about revisiting Tintern Abbey in Taylor Swift's song The Lakes. Ivy is, then, an agent of and window dressing on romantic ruin. And indeed, the lover in Ivy is something of a romantic ruin themselves. Their fatal flaw makes them long to be magnificently cursed, like a sort of Byronic hero, or someone who longs to be a Byronic hero because they think that that would make them more interesting. Once again, as in The Lakes and in Look What You Made Me Do, we find Taylor in relation to a graveyard, this time not as an unrepentant undead zombie or elegizer of her own past, but in counterpoint to the widow who has something inert and dead to mourn in front of. Taylor here has no gravestone through which to focalize her grief. Indeed, she herself is a stone house, a monument that becomes overgrown by ivy. She mourns the stone that is herself, grieving for the living. The song seems to be about adulterous love. Taylor, promised to someone else, falls under the influence of a mysterious figure. This relationship is completely wrapped up, as it were, in symbol and metaphor, fittingly for a song that seems to take place in a dreamland. For dreams, as our friend Freud would remind us, are our deepest wishes and fears distorted and changed in their progress through the mind. The house wrapped up in ivy feels like an image from a dream, although Freud would not have to look far to find a sexual reading of it particularly the idea of the roots planting themselves in soil. But today we are eco-critics, so we must see the overt, or almost overt, sexual overtones as a distraction for the real relationship here between humans and nature. We'll get there. The Wikipedia article on ivy tells us that, quote, on level ground, ivy plants remain creeping, not exceeding 5 to 20 centimeters of height, but on suitable surfaces for climbing, including trees, natural rock outcrops, or man-made structures, they can climb to at least 30 meters above the ground, or 100 feet. In other words, ivy takes the shape of what attracts it. It's malleable, a shapeshifter. If the lover is ivy, there's another trailing plant that's referred to briefly here, the grapevine the source of that wine that Taylor encourages the lover to drink. The grapevine, too, grows where it's trained, whether simply as a bush or draped across trellis. Is there a possible reading here where the husband is a grapevine producing wine that the ivy slurps up? Don't tell me that's not what she means. I scoff at meaning. The grapevine lies dormant in winter, falling asleep while the ivy is ever green, ever growing and flourishing, even when coming in from the snow. The grapevine requires care and protection from pests, while ivy is an invasive species at least in North America. The grapevine produces human sustenance, while the ivy grows only toxic berries and, according to Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge, can cause dermatitis when touched, which sucks for Taylor. I'm not sure, however, that the ivy is here a totally negative view of a relationship. Rather, the ivy's evergreen nature, its ability to flourish under difficult circumstances, actually makes it seem like a model for love that endures despite difficulties. 
Although I think also that we could say that Taylor's speaker is not in a particularly good situation in this song. Taylor is left wrapped up in this poison plant instead of frolicking in the fields of clover in the spring when most plants return. Taylor is literally unlucky in love then, held back from the fields of clover where she might stumble on a plant with an extra heart-shaped leaf. All right, enough facts about plants. I point you to Wikipedia if you want to learn more about plants. It has taught me all I know. Taylor's speaker, covered in the ivy of her lover, becomes this hybrid human plant. The roots of the ivy plant themselves in her stone flesh, part dead inert mineral and part rampant foliage. As Stacey Alaimo writes in Bodily Nature's Science, Environment, and the Material Self, quote, potent ethical and political possibilities emerge from the literal contact zone between human corporeality and more than human nature. Imagining human corporeality as transcorporeality, in which the human is always intermeshed with the more than human world, underlines the extent to which the substance of the human is ultimately inseparable from, quote, the environment. This kind of thinking opens up a mobile space that acknowledges the often unpredictable and unwanted actions of human bodies, non-human creatures, ecological systems, chemical agents, and other actors. In other words, to think of human bodies as part of environments is to be more cognizant of the inevitable interconnections of our world, the ways in which we are always acting upon other people and ourselves in ways both visible and invisible, large and small. Citing Harold Fromm, if we were to watch ourselves via some ideal microscopic time-lapse video, we would see water, air, food, microbes, toxins entering our bodies as we shed, excrete, and exhale our process materials back out. Environment, then, is the very substance of human existence in the world. This is particularly important for feminist thinking, Alimo goes on to explain, because women have often, in Western thinking, been described by reference to nature as a creature, as she puts it, mired in nature, and thus outside the domain of human transcendence, rationality, subjectivity, and agency. And therefore, as she points out, a lot of feminist thinking has been about arguing against this essentialist view of women, but Alimo argues that we might instead try to destroy, as she puts it, the dualities that have been cultivated to denigrate and silence certain groups of humans, as well as non-human life. That is, to understand the ways in which the categories of women and nature have been used in mutually oppressive ways. Donna Haraway, too, in Simeon's Cyborgs and Women, The Reinvention of Nature, argues for a reimagining of a relationship with nature, one that re-examines how language forces us into identity positions. She writes, Our relations with nature might be imagined as a social engagement with a being who is neither it, you, thou, he, she, nor they in relation to us. And Haraway goes on to encourage her readers to think of themselves as monsters who go beyond the dualities of human or non-human, nature or culture, biology or technology. As monsters, she asks, can we demonstrate another order of signification? We might then turn back to Taylor Swift's ivy-laden speaker as a monstrous plant-stone-human hybrid, giving us a glimpse of what lies in between these dualities across the boundaries of the human, a figure at once natural and supernatural, human and superhuman. Timothy Morton would call this dark ecology a way of thinking about ecology as a supernatural awareness. 
And Morton draws on the word weird here, a word that can mean causal, as he puts it, the winding of the spool of fate, or as a noun can mean destiny or magical power, but of course can also mean, as he puts it, strange of appearance. Ecological awareness, Morton goes on, is weird. It has a twisted, looping form. Since there is no limit to the scope of ecological beings, biosphere, solar system, the loop form of beings means we live in a universe of finitude and fragility. It means that the politics of coexistence are always contingent, brittle, and flawed. And I think that this can help us understand the strange interconnection of Taylor Swift's ivy, an almost supernatural sense of things linked by sort of mystical and mystifying forces, connections that we don't see and yet we fear. You can see ivy as a metaphor for a, or rather two, bad relationships, a marriage and an affair with unreliable, controlling people, one in which Taylor's agency seems to vanish. But you could also see her speaker in Ivy as someone in a relationship to the universe that we're all in, that's about inevitable interconnection, limited resources, taking what isn't yours, a relationship in which there is no separation between the self and the world, in which you're always acted upon by other people, by other things, and you have to carve out a place in which you can be yourself. But that self is not only yours. Taylor asks whether she should run or dare to sit and watch what will become, and the song ends before we know what happens. It's hard to imagine her being able to run if we think of her as a house of stone covered in ivy. The only outcome seems to be to sit and watch. This mutation, this transformation, this proliferating monstrosity, Taylor could become anything. There seems no end to the potential for transformation, for change. Amongst the metaphors in the song, the fire, the war, the strangest and most frightening thing in some ways is the continuing proliferation of ivy, this ivy that could become anything. Thank you for listening to Studies in Taylor Swift. You can send questions or comments to studiesintaylorswift at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast to help other people find it. You're listening to Happy Strumming by Audionautics.